From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. A bone marrow transplant is a procedure that infuses healthy blood-forming stem cells into your body to replace your damaged or diseased bone marrow. Bone marrow transplants may use cells from your own body or from a donor. Bone marrow transplants can benefit people with a variety of both cancerous, malignant, or non-cancerous benign diseases. On today's program, we'll discuss bone marrow transplant with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, the most common form of eye cancer in children, retinoblastoma, and how cardio-oncology rehab can help cancer patients recover and deal with the treatment side effects. All that right after this. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A bone marrow transplant, also known as a stem cell transplant, is a procedure that transplants healthy blood stem cells into the body to replace damaged or diseased bone marrow. And the cells can come from your own body, they can come from a donor, or they can come from umbilical cord blood. Stem cell transplants are often used to treat cancers, most often cancers of the blood or immune system. Those examples would include leukemia, lymphoma, and multiple myeloma. Joining us in studio to tell us more is the director of the Bone Marrow Transplant Program at Mayo Clinic, hematologist, that's blood specialist, Dr. William Hogan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hogan. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about the the bone marrow and stem cells. Essentially, when we're doing a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant, the idea is to try and replace the diseased bone marrow with healthy cells. Uh, Sometimes we use the person's own cells. Uh, That's appropriate for certain diseases, such as multiple myeloma or lymphoma, where the cells that we collect are not usually contaminated by the underlying disease. For other diseases, such as leukemias and myelodysplastic syndromes, we have to use cells from a different person because the cells that we collect may be contaminated by the disease. So there's two different types. There's one which comes from yourself, an autologous transplant, and one which comes from somebody else, an allogeneic transplant. The one where we collect through the dialysis-like machine called leukophoresis is called a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. The one where we collect from the pelvis is called a bone marrow transplant. But sometimes we use the term bone marrow transplant colloquially to mean both. Now, what do these stem cells do? So the stem cells are kind of like the seed cells. If you have a garden and you plant seeds, these are what produce all of the plants in the, uh, in the garden. Similarly for us, the stem cells produce the red cells that produce hemoglobin that help us function and allow us to uh, supply oxygen to our tissues. The white cells, which help us fight off infections and the platelets, which help prevent us from bleeding. You mentioned that you're replacing uh, diseased cells in someone's marrow with fresh, good stem cells. Um, Are almost all of these patients, do almost all of these patients have cancer, or are there other reasons why someone might need a transplant? Yeah, that's an excellent question. The vast majority of our practice are patients that do have a form of cancer, usually a blood cancer like lymphoma, multiple myeloma, leukemia, myelodysplastic syndrome. And by the way, explain myelodysplastic syndrome. So myelodysplastic syndrome, the old name used to be called pre-leukemia. This is a condition of the bone marrow where the bone marrow doesn't work normally, so it can result in two problems. One is where there's failure of the production of the cells in the bone marrow, or that they can convert into a form of leukemia. So it's an abnormal bone marrow problem where you can have either failure of production 
or transition to acute leukemia. How long have you been using stem cells to cure these or to solve these problems? So this goes back to the original bone marrow transplant was done in 1963 at Mayo. And since the late 1980s, early 1990s, we've been using more peripheral blood stem cells. So you mentioned that the type of stem cell transplants, and by the way, I think you were going to explain to us that why you do these transplants, cancer is the most common reason, but there are other reasons? Yep. Uh, In our practice, the vast majority are blood cancers, but there are other types of cancers. So for instance, germ cell tumors, which can affect the testicle, sometimes can be treated with a uh, bone marrow transplant. And then there are other variety of diseases like immune disorders, bone marrow failure syndromes, Uh, diseases like sickle cell disease or thalassemia that can also be considered for a transplant. And then uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the source of the stem cells. It depends, again, on the type of transplant. So for some people, they can come from the person themselves, and that can be either bone marrow or peripheral blood, but almost exclusively now we use peripheral blood for that indication. For getting them from a donor, we have a number of options. The most common one that we would like to use is a matched sibling or brother-sister donor. But sometimes we can use other family members. uh, And what's become more popular recently and more effective is half-matched transplants or haploidentical transplants. And oftentimes this expands the donor pool. So in a patient that doesn't have a matched brother or sister, then we may be able to consider another family member, such as a parent in the case of a child that has a disease, or a child in the case of an adult that has the disease, as a potential donor. And with the recent technology that's allowed us to do half-matched transplants more safely, this has actually become a very uh, significant uh, new technology that's allowing ex- access to a lot more uh, transplants for patients. So it would seem to me like if you had the opportunity, you would always use the patient as the donor because then you don't have to worry about rejection. Uh, and, and so tell us again why it is you don't always do that. For certain diseases, we know that a person's own stem cells can be useful. So for instance, multiple myeloma or lymphoma frequently, because the cells we collect don't are not involved by the disease that we're trying to treat, then we can give high-dose chemotherapy to try and uh, reduce or eradicate the underlying myeloma or lymphoma, and then use the stem cells as a way to just repopulate the bone marrow after the high-dose chemotherapy. In that situation, most of the effect of the transplant is relying on the high-dose chemotherapy, and the stem cells are there to repopulate the bone marrow afterwards. In an allogeneic transplant, the cells that we collect are not feasible. One, that we can't collect enough because they have an underlying bone marrow disease that doesn't allow us to collect the cells, or that they're impacted by the disease itself, and the cells we put back in would be malignant and therefore wouldn't be a very good option. So umbilical cord, do you use that when you can't use the patient's own uh, stem cells or bone marrow, and you can't find a good match? Absolutely. It's a possibility. Umbilical cord was very popular for a long time, especially in children, because there are some limitations with umbilical cord. One is that the size of the unit that we can take, which is, after all, a newborn baby, tends to be quite small, and therefore, for most adults, a single unit is not sufficient. Uh, There was a recent very large study that had looked at half-matched versus umbilical cord blood, and there's a slight advantage in some situations for the half-matched transplant. So we are using more and more half-matched transplants, but still in the right circumstances, umbilical cord transplants are very appropriate and reasonable. And that is, those are not embryonic stem cells? Absolutely not. These are healthy babies that are born that have the umbilical cord that is uh, normally discarded after the uh, birth. 
where we can collect the stem cells that are sitting in the umbilical cord that would otherwise be discarded, and we can use those for a transplant. I always thought that um, that again, you're holding up about two feet, about two feet of umbilical cord, and the uh, the small amount of stem cells that can come out of that. I always thought that those were just taken to the lab and expanded out, like you could grow them. Mm-hmm. Is that? Of course, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> well, you've actually had a very perceptive question there because in general, we don't expand the umbilical cords, but there is a newer technologies looking at ways of trying to expand umbilical cord units uh, to try and help get better engraftment and to improve their potential. So I think maybe you should consider being a scientist and not being a radio host. <laughs> <laughs> well, are those, um, if you get from a child or from umbilical cord, are those stem cells healthier than if you get from an adult donor? Not necessarily. Uh, I think they have different characteristics. They're more immature because they haven't seen a lifetime of infections and viruses that an adult would have seen. So that there are good, there's good and bad to that. On the one hand, adult stem cells might be better at able to control certain infections because they've seen them before and recognize them. But uh, younger uh, children are more immunologically naive and therefore they can they're less likely to cause severe complications like graft-versus-host disease. So there's pros and cons to both, and we're just trying to pick the best choice depending on the patient's individual circumstances and on the product that we have and the availability of other options that are available to us. So if you're unfortunate enough to get one of these cancers that we've been talking about and you can't use your own cells, if you've got an identical twin, you're golden, Right. Maybe, but maybe maybe not. Really? (laughs) In fact, uh, there are some interesting things that happened there. So if we had a perfectly matched uh, donor that was not an identical twin and a perfectly and an identical twin, frequently we choose the other donor because an identical twin can actually be too similar. And part of the reason why the stem cells from a donor work is that they have an immune reaction against the leukemia. And that's not really available in patients that have an identical donor. So frequently, and we've been in the situation before where we have somebody come that has a matched sibling and an identical donor, and we end up choosing the non-identical sibling, which is a surprise to many patients and even physicians sometimes. Absolutely. Well, our guest is the director of the bone bone marrow transplant program at Mayo Clinic, Dr. William Hogan. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about what it's like to have a bone marrow transplant. We'll talk about the outcomes, the success rate. We'll talk about what the future holds, and we'll tell you how you can actually become a bone marrow donor. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the director of the Bone Marrow Transplant Program at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. William Hogan. We've learned a lot about bone marrow transplants. What are the diseases that uh, bone marrow transplants are usually used to treat? We've talked about where who could be a uh, donor and whether or not you can actually get your own stem cells. And if none of those are an option, then umbilical cord blood might be an option. So the next thing we want to talk about is uh, the outcomes. How successful are bone marrow transplants? I know they're, they're more successful than, than they used to be, but where do we stand? So this is very much dependent on the type of disease, the type of patient, and things are evolving on a you know yearly basis there. 
So over the last number of decades, uh, there's been progressive incremental improvements. Um, so really, there's not a single answer to that question. It really depends on the type of disease you have. We've got better approaches to treat graft-versus-host disease. We've got better mechanisms to determine who's at risk for getting high complications, high-risk complications such as severe graft-versus-host disease. And we've learned how to reduce the complications such as lung injury and liver injury and many other injuries related to uh, graft-versus-host disease and other transplant complications. What is the most common complication? So the two things that are most troublesome for transplant is relapse of the underlying disease, which unfortunately is still a problem, and we've got a lot of strategies to try and help deal with that depending on the disease. So recurrence of the cancer. Exactly. And then the other thing is graft-versus-host disease. And I've mentioned that a couple of times. What that is is where the donor immune system starts reacting against a person's normal tissues. And this only occurs generally in the context of where the donor is somebody else rather than your own cells. Can you get a second transplant? So we try to avoid that. We try to give uh, the first shot at transplant our best uh, effort at trying to make it successful. Very occasionally, then, there is a need for a second transplant or supplementing the original transplant with additional cells from the original donor, which is uh, kind of a variant on a second transplant called donor lymphocyte infusion. What's it like to get a stem cell transplant? So it can be different depending on how intense the regimen that we use is. We have, in general terms, very highly intense regimens called myeloablative. Milo means the bone marrow. Ablative means wiping it out. So that's very intense. We have reduced intensity, which uses less intense chemotherapy. And both of those ultimately will result in a complete replacement of the donor bone marrow, or the recipient bone marrow by donor bone marrow. So this sick bone marrow, before you give them the new cells, you want to kill everything that's in there, every cancer cell, if you can. So it's really not practical to kill every cancer cell with chemotherapy, but yes, we try to give high doses to try and minimize it as much as possible and then use the immune system of the donor to try and eradicate what's left behind. And once you've done that, you're basically walking around without an immune system, which is incredibly dangerous. Exactly. So your blood counts can be very low for a number of weeks afterwards. And so these patients do require very careful monitoring, transfusion support, antibiotic support, medicines to try and prevent complications. And that becomes a challenge. So is it like uh, getting a blood transfusion? You feel like a million bucks right away? (laughs) Uh, I think many people that got blood transfusions may not felt <laughs> like a million bucks right away, but I think uh, it does take time. And so it is a pretty uh, challenging procedure for most patients, and it does take some time to recover, and that can be variable from a number of weeks to uh, many years to for some patients, depending on how difficult and complicated it gets. Yeah, how long does it take for those stem cells to ramp up once so, they're in your system? Yeah, depending uh, on the type of graft, somewhere between two and four weeks is fairly typical. So for peripheral blood stem cell grafts, it tends to be faster, usually a couple of weeks. And for bone marrow-derived grafts, it's oftentimes about three to four weeks. How do viruses, infections uh, that become fairly widespread, how do they affect your program? Uh, Separate from the coronavirus, we deal with infections all the time in bone marrow transplants. So uh, what is oftentimes in the environment uh, may not affect us normally when our immune system goes away becomes a very significant challenge. The coronavirus is an example of a, a very large problem that has arisen, and this one has been particularly problematic because it's been so quick uh, to spread across the world. It has uh, really impacted our uh, ability to do transplants, but we're accommodating to that and uh, figuring out ways to try and do transplants safely. Some of the ways it's impacted us is, one, is there a risk of the products that we collect from donors, and half our donors come from 
outside of the United States in Europe. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so that becomes a problem when we see flights shut down and things like that and the logistics that go along with that because the timing is very critical. Secondly, there's always a concern that if the donor was exposed to an infection such as coronavirus, you know, is that possible to be passed on? And we don't know fully all the details about that yet. And then, you know, whether a person themselves, after going through the transplant, might be exposed to the virus. And that, as you know, could be a significant problem as well, because the most vulnerable patients are those that are older and have other underlying comorbidities such as leukemia and blood disorders. How much does the usual transplant cost and is it covered by insurance? So the cost is, again, very, very dependent on the type of transplant. In general, autologous transplants where you get your own cells tend to be cheaper, and allogeneic transplants where you get uh, from a donor tend to be more expensive. For certain leukemias, so for instance, acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia is almost always covered by insurance. There are other uh, situations where uh, CMS, Medicare, essentially, is looking at whether the outcomes are good enough in order to justify doing a transplant, and so they've put a a provisional payment system in place. And then there are other uh, indications where uh, it's not indicated to do a transplant, and that's not generally covered. But for the majority of indications, it's covered by insurance. Are there other cellular therapies coming along that uh, may uh, improve even more uh, patients who have these serious cancers? There is a, a huge number of new drugs that have come along in the last couple of years that have been helping us to try and reduce the risk of relapse for many of these cancers. There's uh, better ways of trying to identify which patients are at greater risk of complications, especially graft-versus-host disease. And in the area of cellular therapy, you may have heard of a newer technology called CAR-T, which is chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. And these are taking the T-cells from a person and then re-engineering them to recognize the cancer. And this has become a very uh, successful new technology that is uh, very helpful in controlling Uh, certain leukemias and uh, blood disorders such as lymphoma and myeloma and has a lot of potential for the future. We have just a few seconds left. How can a person become a donor? So if you are interested in becoming a donor for an unrelated person, then call or look up Be The Match online. There's a website there that will go through the screening questions to see if you might be a good person to uh, sign up as a donor, and they will uh, work you through it. And in general, it's very simple. What they'll do is after you fill out the questionnaire, they'll send you a swab to get some DNA from your cheek, just like Ancestry.com, send it back, and then you can be registered as a donor. And can pregnant women donate their baby's cord blood through Be The Match as well? So that's a a very interesting question, and it's a little more complicated. They can. uh, There are independent cord blood Uh, banks that can uh, collect cord blood. What I would suggest there is if you're interested in doing this, look into it sometime before you're due to deliver, because if you leave it to the last minute, it probably won't happen. Is there an age limit? Uh, Over 60 uh, for an unrelated donor uh, is the cutoff, but for a related donor where you need to donate to a family member, uh, that's much more flexible and uh, can be adjusted if needed. All right, stem cell transplants, a life-saving therapy for many patients with some cancers. Our thanks to the director of the Bone Marrow Transplant Program at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. William Hogan. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. (music) 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Well, Tracy, as you know, you can get cancer pretty much anywhere in your body, including the eye. And there's a tumor called retinoblastoma that is the most common form of cancer affecting the eye, mostly in children, although it can occasionally occur in adults. And it can occur in one or both eyes. Now, it begins in the retina. That's the light-sensitive lining in the back of your eye, sort of like the film in a camera. It senses the light that comes through your eye. Yeah, yep, right the front of the eye. Exactly. <laughs> gotcha. Today we're going to learn you. more about retinoblastoma from two Mayo Clinic experts, ophthalmologist and ocular oncologist, that's eye cancer specialist, Dr. Lauren Delvin, and neuroradiologist, Dr. Walid Brinjikji. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. Dr. Dalvin, uh, unfortunately, a cancer of the eye that affects mainly children, retinoblastoma. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is the most common eye cancer that we see in children that actually starts in the eye itself. Um, And this is one of the most common things that I do in my practice. It's something that often the parents actually pick up. So it's something that sometimes doesn't necessarily get seen by our pediatricians if we're not having routine dilated eye exams. So often we find this most commonly with mom often noticing a white reflex in one of the eyes, either just looking at their child or taking a picture. And actually our second most common person who picks this up is grandma looking at their grandchildren. So the pupil looks white? Is that what it is? Yeah, that's right. So oftentimes if you notice on a camera or back in the day, if you think to before we had cell phones, you would get this red reflex in Mm -hmm. the eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, So this we're seeing actually a white reflex. You can see it when you take a picture. You can see it just kind of on glance at an angle if the light shines into the eye and hits this tumor it's actually a white tumor so it creates a white reflection why does it affect children instead of adults yeah so this can be actually in some cases inherited genetically where there's a specific mutation on a specific chromosome chromosome 13 that can cause retinoblastoma tumors to form as the eye is developing but this can actually occur sporadically as the eye is growing Um, in a child, even before they're born. Sometimes you can get little mutations that the immune system isn't able to fight off that can develop into this cancer. So by the time you're an adult, that's less likely to happen? Correct. So by the time we're an adult, the eye has mostly been formed. We don't have rapidly dividing cells Mm -hmm. in the eye anymore. So we're much less likely to get any mutations in the retinal cells. So most of these kids are how old when when they're diagnosed? So when we have our genetically inherited type, or when we see it in both eyes, then usually we pick it up by about a year of age. But most cases actually are not this inherited type. They're kind of that sporadic, just some funny mutation happened during cell division. And that's usually picked up about at age two. Sorry, because this is cancer, it can metastasize and actually take a child's life. That's correct. We're really fortunate in the United States. That is very rare. We're lucky that we tend to catch this early. But this can travel usually down the optic nerve toward the brain, and it can spread to other parts of the body. And once it gets out of the eye, it can be very challenging to treat. So the optic nerve is the nerve that carries the signal from the back of the eye to the brain. Exactly right. So is that where it goes next? Is it goes to the brain? That tends to be, if it gets out of the eye, that's how it spreads back toward the brain. And actually, our children who have the genetic form of this also are predisposed to a specific type of brain cancer that happens in a specific place called the pineal gland. So they can get a pinealoblastoma, and we have to watch that with MRI scans. Wow. And so 
if you're able to, let's go back, just take a step back, where it hasn't traveled outside of that eye, can you save the eye? Or if a child has this in their eye, is their eye, does it have to be removed? Great question. So I always like to discuss these three main goals of care with any family that is affected by retinoblastoma. So our first and foremost important goal is to save the child's life. So we always have to keep sight of that. But our second goal, if it's safe, would be to save the eye. And oftentimes now we really can. We're getting better and better at that. And actually, uh, Dr. Benjikchi here with me does something called intra-arterial chemotherapy. And so for some eyes that have really advanced tumors, we can now save them with this technique where before we would have had to remove the eye. Let me just ask you one quick question before we go to, we can call you Dr. B. That sounds good. <laughs> uh, so once the, uh, it's suspected by the mother or the grandmother that the child has this, how do you confirm the diagnosis? What do you do to say, oh my gosh, this is retinoblastoma? So most often we diagnose this based on our clinical exam. So the best thing to do is try to get a good dilated eye exam and oftentimes a local pediatric ophthalmologist can help do that. If the pediatric ophthalmologist is concerned for this, then they'll often send to an ocular oncologist, someone who has special training in eye cancer. And we can do things like an examination in the operating room with the child asleep. We can take a careful look at both eyes and do specific tests like ultrasound to look for calcium, which is common in these tumors. And we'll often do an MRI scan, not only to look at the eye, but also to look at that part of the brain that may be at risk. And then you call Dr. B. That's right. <laughs> so tell us, uh, Dr. Brinjikchi, um, how you treat these the children, one of the newer, better ways. Yeah, so over the course of the past uh, decade or so, there's been an emergence of this use of intra-arterial uh, chemotherapy. And essentially uh, what that entails is taking a tiny catheter, which is like a hollow tube, and the size of that tube is about a third of a millimeter in diameter, so really tiny. And you go from the groin all the way up to the blood vessel that is in the right behind the eye, uh, called the ophthalmic artery. So it goes, you know, basically into the the retina uh, that we had talked about earlier. And then once you have your tiny catheter parked in this ophthalmic artery, you can deliver. Uh, the chemotherapy agent directly into that artery and then directly into that tumor. Get out. That is amazing. <laughs> amazing. So that's instead of giving it systemically, intravenously, where it goes to the whole body, you direct it just to the eye, just to where the tumor is. Exactly. And that's nice because it avoids giving you know a, what's called a systemic dose. So a dose that would affect all of the organs in the child. You can give a smaller dose and then target it uh, directly into the, the eye itself. That's Amazing! How effective is it? So it depends on the uh, size and the extent of the tumor. For some of the smaller tumors, it's the f efficacy is well over ninety percent. Um, but then for some of the larger tumors that um, that we've uh, treated, the efficacy is in the neighborhood of about fifty to sixty percent in terms of preserving the eye, um, in terms of allowing us to preserve the the eye itself. And how often uh, do you require? Does the eye require removal? How often do you have to do that when Doctor B can't save it? So it's less and less all the time. So really, when we catch this tumor very early, um, 
we kind of classify these into A, B, C, D, and E. So when we catch it early at the A, B, or C stage, we can save nearly all of those I's. If we get into our D's, maybe about one-fifth of I's have to be removed. And when we are at our E's, which are really our most advanced I's, still about half of those eventually have to be removed. It's not necessarily always because we can't control the tumor, but sometimes the tumor's so large that it's made the eye sick, even if we're able to cure the cancer. And if you if this treatment is successful, is vision completely restored, or do most kids lose some vision? I would defer to Dr. Dalvin on that mm-hmm. one. <laughs> so we can have... Um, Hold on. That's okay. Oh, I accidentally turned it on. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so we can have a pretty wide range of visual acuity outcomes depending on where the tumor is located and what size it was. So what we hope for when Dr. B is able to do this for us is we hope that even if we have a large tumor, it might shrink away from the center vision. So I've seen children who have these really advanced D and E tumors where it just shrinks completely away from the center vision, and they can end up with 20-20 vision. But sometimes you get a scar that's in your center vision, and you end up with something like count fingers vision or hand motion. But these kids can still have very useful peripheral vision and have really good cosmetic appearance so they can get around and don't have some of the social stigma that might come with having an eye removed. Pretty exciting stuff. Dr. B, is there other chemotherapy options that you need to tell us about or radiation options? Well, I specialize uh, only in the intra-arterial chemotherapy, but Dr. Dalvin also does uh, intravitreal chemotherapy, uh, which uh, has also been shown to be very effective. What is that? So the vitreous, yeah, is that's a liquid inside the eye. So you actually inject the chemotherapy with a needle into the eyeball? Exactly. So that's where Dr. B and I really kind of tag team some of these really advanced tumors. So he can do the intra-arterial delivery, but then sometimes I might also give intravitreal delivery. So it's kind of getting chemotherapy from both the back and the front of the tumor. And that can be really effective at saving some of these advanced eyes as well. Um, And several other things we can do to try to save these eyes. This is often a multi-modality approach. So it's often not just one treatment and we're done. So sometimes we might see little small areas that need treatment. We can do things like freezing called cryotherapy. We can do things with a specific heat laser called thermotherapy. And those can really treat some of the really tiny tumors so that we don't need to circle back to our chemotherapies even if we have a small recurrence. Other things we can use include radiation therapy. Now, I want to make an important distinction here. In the old days, we used to use a lot of external beam radiotherapy, and this has some pretty serious side effects. So you can actually end up with some kind of dysmorphism of the face. You can stop those bones around the eyes from growing properly. And the other thing is that that increased the risk of other cancers forming where we gave the radiation. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we have something called plaque radiotherapy, and we use this all the time. We've actually been using it since the 80s in some of our adult eye cancer patients. But this delivers radiation 
just over a very particular spot in the eye. It's very localized, so we don't get any of that side effect on the bone. We don't see any risk of second cancers with this, and that can be really helpful for some tumors when they're resistant to our chemotherapy. All right, retinoblastoma, cancer of the eye, unfortunately more commonly affects children than adults, but there are multiple treatment modalities that are available, including intra-arterial chemotherapy and intravitreal chemotherapy. Our thanks to ocular ophthalmologist, Dr. Lauren Delvin and neuroradiologist Dr. Waleed Brinjicki. Thanks both of you for being here. Thank you so much for having us again. Thank you. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You have heard us use the term cardio-oncology before. It's a relatively new specialty that deals with the complications of cancer treatment on the heart. Now, fortunately, more and more people are being successfully treated and they're surviving cancer. But of course, there can be some side effects from the chemotherapy, from the radiation, from other treatments. And what do you do about it? Uh, If cancer treatment has sent you for a loop, then you might need some rehab. Joining us in studio is cardio-oncology rehabilitation specialist and exercise physiologist, Mr. Adam Schultz. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. We didn't even know there were people like you around. We (laughs) knew that people who had had cancer might have uh, had some kind of rehab or certainly if they'd had heart disease. But you specifically treat patients or help patients who have had cancer prior cancer treatment, correct? Cardio-oncology rehab, we work with patients who have either developed cardiovascular damage as a result of treatment they've received, or those who are at an elevated risk of such damage because of their treatments. What cancer treatments can damage your cardiovascular system? Chemotherapy, of course, radiation, targeted therapies. There are a whole host of medication regimens that patients may undergo that will have adverse effects on their heart function. So the people who are candidates to come see you for your help are people who have had a damage to their heart from whatever kind of cancer treatment they've received. Well, you're exactly right. We work with those patients, but also in our program, we also work with all cancer survivors, regardless of whether or not they've had damage to their heart. Because what we know is that cancer and cardiovascular disease share common risk factors. And in fact, 20 to 30% of cancer survivors have underlying cardiovascular disease. Is that right? 30% more likely to develop coronary artery disease and twice as likely to develop heart failure. So we make a point of it to encourage all cancer survivors to participate in exercise rehab. Man, when you have got cancer, you do not feel like exercising. So are you helping patients that are going through their treatment, or are you helping them after their treatment is completed? The guidelines would say that everyone with cancer should participate in exercise to the best of their abilities. I hope the patients who are going through their treatment, when they show up at the gym to work with you, I hope they get a sticker just for showing up. Yeah, and I always congratulate patients for coming to see us because only about 10% of patients going through treatment actually exercise regularly. And after treatment, only 20 to 30% are active. So I certainly congratulate them on coming to see us because I I say that they're a step ahead of the game. How much is um, stress reduction helpful for patients as they're going through their treatment. And what I know is that, you know, when you're getting a good cardiovascular workout, that helps with stress. Where do those two things meet for cancer patients? 
Some of the known benefits for exercising cancer survivors do include improved depression symptoms, decreased anxiety, and as you mentioned, it can be incredibly stressful going through therapy, receiving the diagnosis. And so there are a lot of things that perhaps cancer patients don't feel as though they have control of when exercise is one thing that they can kind of take the reins of and feel as though they have some say in what their treatment course entails. When they come to see you, do you outline a program for them and then they're kind of on their own or do you see them on a regular basis? We have a couple of different options. We have one program where, for example, if patients are from far away and they're only here for a short time, we have a one-time comprehensive exercise session that includes education and we'll develop a custom evidence-based exercise prescription for them that they can then take home with them. Um, I'm sorry, were you going to say something else? Well, just that we also have a program for patients who are local or who have the opportunity to attend more frequently. They can stay with us for a month or even many months, depending on what their doctor or other provider wants for them. Okay, be careful. You're talking with your hands and Uh, making noises. That's all. Hold on. Um, You said uh, an exercise prescription. Yeah. What is an exercise prescription like for someone who is a cancer patient? It's very similar, in fact, to what you'd give someone who doesn't have cancer. It just depends on what type of limitations they're bringing to the table. So we'll address cardiorespiratory fitness, the ability to do things like walking, biking, swimming, things along those lines for an extended period of time. We'll include muscular strength and endurance. Often that looks like weight training using hand weights, resistance bands, body weight, a whole number of different things. But also flexibility and balance are important components of it as well. So you are an exercise physiologist, and and, and what does that mean? What, what's your training been? Well, we specialize in working with all individuals who are wanting to participate in exercise, but we're especially trained in working with people with chronic diseases who maybe need some additional guidance or clinical monitoring to make sure that they're doing it safely. So we have an understanding of what the disease process does to exercise adaptations and where it can be beneficial. Is that different than a physical therapist? That's a good question, and we get it all the time. And physical therapists work primarily with rehabilitating maybe specific joints or muscle groups, whereas we take, I guess, more of a comprehensive approach. We're targeting everything at once. The standard – I'm sorry, go ahead. Where do your patients come from? Are they all referred, or can a cancer patient come to you directly? Patients hear about us through word of mouth, but we do require a provider referral to exercise with us. Mm -hmm. That's what I was just going to ask about. So lots of times you'll hear the standard disclaimer of, you know, consult your doctor before beginning this exercise program, and that has to be part of what you're doing. Patients will come to us directly from a provider. We do a thorough review of their medical history, making sure we understand what treatments they've undergone, or about to undergo so that we can design a program with that in mind. Is is there any particular type of cancer patient that you see more often than others? For example, more often lung cancer patients or breast or prostate, or does it have just basically follow the the, uh, cancers that are most common? Well, it, it tends to follow trends, and it's usually because some departments are well aware of us, whereas others maybe aren't quite yet. So we do see a lot of lymphoma patients, we see a lot of breast cancer patients, and a lot of other different diagnoses, but primarily those two. So would you say most of your referrals come from cancer specialists, oncologists? 
Yes, or cardio-oncologists specifically who specialize in working with patients who have developed cardiovascular damage or who are at elevated risk of and doing so. And we do have a cardio-oncology department now, which we've heard about. Is there, um, have, has there been any research done to show if being, cardi- you know, being, fit, uh, being active while you're going through treatment helps you with your uh, cancer treatment? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what we know is that when we look specifically at cardiorespiratory fitness, has what we call an inverse relationship. So the fitter one is, the less likely people are to die of any cause, cancer and cardiac disease included. All right, cardio-oncology rehab, no question. There are benefits to regular exercise for patients who are getting or who have had cancer. And there are rehab specialists like Mr. Schultz who can help. Thanks so much for being with us. And I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, thank you for listening.